Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we are excited to welcome back to the podcast Aziz Efrana, Richard and Lois Cole Professor of Law at Cornell University and the author of a very interesting recent piece in Descent titled Left Internationalism in the Heart of Empire. And even more importantly, I think uh, Aziz was our, our third guest, our second or third guest. So he really helped us get going on this wonderful endeavor. Uh, so we really appreciate that too. Aziz, thank you so much for coming back. Thanks so much for, for having me on. I really enjoyed our last conversation. Looking forward to chatting now. Um, so why don't we just get into it? And I, I, I found this piece really fascinating, and it's basically the the, the spark piece for a, a forum on uh, left foreign policy. And as people might know, just to contextualize it a little bit, in the last five, six-ish years, really since the Sanders 2016 campaign got off the ground, there's there's been a renewed discussion of left foreign policy and particularly related to what the, the American left um, can do in relation to um, a socialist or social democrat actually achieving the presidency. Now, in the wake of Bernie, uh, it doesn't seem like that's probably going to happen anytime soon. So we're uh, in a little bit of a of, of an interregnum, a period between Bernie and whatever comes next for the left. So just to contextualize that, I think that that's where we are in terms of this left wing foreign policy debate. Before Bernie, there was a real chance that people on the left would actually have some sort of say in policy. And now post Bernie, it seems like that is increasingly unlikely. Biden, of course, has just embraced his standard liberal internationalist position. All of his staff. Uh, excuse me, Joe Biden is the most <laughs> progressive. Of president since FDR. Yes, actually, yes, since FDR that repeatedly. Give, that as it may. <laughs> he is probably he's true, fully actually, embraced. Yeah, yeah. Grim times. Uh, fully embraced uh, American imperialism. So, Aziz, just to, to begin to talk about this essay, why did you think now was a good time? to write it, um, and really uh, beyond, I'm sure they asked you, and it seemed like a good thing to do. <laughs> but like, what about, what strikes you about this post-Bernie moment in this left-wing foreign policy discussion world? Yeah, so I mean, I, I started uh, thinking a little bit about this, and you know, you're right, like the, the, the impetus to write the piece was I was asked if I'd be willing to do it. Um, but I also was kind of focused on what struck me as a pretty significant issue, which is that if you just look at American foreign policy over the last year and then really over the last decade, it feels like it's been one blunder after another, and that it's pretty apparent that the overarching agenda of the national security state has failed. I mean, so we have these wars of choice um, that have produced disastrous consequences. We have an economic policy that's built around neoliberal austerity that has immiserated publics overseas, has come back to haunt the, the domestic American economy. Uh, and then you can just go on and on where it, you would think that this would be a moment in which there would be a real opportunity to rethink the basic terms of the security state and of American strategic objectives. But actually, the way that politics has played out over the last year and the two kind of key examples of this for me was the conversation around the withdrawal in Afghanistan and then the politics uh, that emerged around the conversation about Russia's imperial invasion of Ukraine. 
was one in which it was actually the left that felt like it was really on the defensive. So that incipient efforts to actually think about, well, how else should the U.S. be sort of related to the rest of the world? You know, those are the folks facing pushback. And the dominant position, this idea that there are these bad actors out there in the world, the U.S. is the only state that can actually meaningfully do something, and that each time there's any kind of crisis, that is further proof that the U.S. should be engaged in a project of unipolar dominance. And so I just wanted to kind of think through why that was the case, why that despite the failures of the national security state, it's actually left foreign policy thinking that seems like it's, you know, facing these sort of broader challenges. And it kind of led me to think about the difference between our present moment and really the last time in the U.S. that you had a vibrant left socialist politics. And I would describe that as the late 60s, early 1970s. And the big difference to me between this moment and that was that that was an era connected to the fact that you had these very rich anti-colonial traditions and movements globally, where there were actually thick transnational institutions of the left. Now, you can't romanticize it. The, these institutional connections had their own limitations, weaknesses, but to be a person of the left in the U.S. was really to be connected to what felt like a global movement. And, you know, I think part of the problem that left foreign policymaking has now is the extent to which it is really isolated within national borders and that these thick connections have basically disappeared. In a sense, we've lost something that has been so eliminated from public consciousness that we're almost like not aware of the thing that was lost. And I think it's a huge roadblock to sustaining a consistent, strong, presented left politics when it comes to foreign policy. So why don't we pause on that moment in the 60s and the 70s and dig down a little deeper? Because I think in retrospect, it, it, it does seem, I, I, I don't mean to be cynical, I just mean to be like clear-eyed. Um, that a lot of those programs had very little chance of success. The NIEO, the famous one, the New International Economic Order, um, and there's also another one that people don't talk about, the New International Communication Order, um, which was also meant to decolonize um, the means of information, basically the means of information control. It gets a lot less play, but there were these genuine transnational moments, that, and those two are probably the biggest ones. So in retrospect, what do you think their failings were? Is it just a mo uh, an instance? Instantiation, uh, or sorry, an instance of the North Atlantic Metropole essentially ensuring that they don't succeed? Or, or why do you think, or what do you think we need to know about those two structures, or really the NIEO? Yeah, so I, I think there are two different things that, that, that's sort of worth reflecting on. So the first is how the, the, the transnational left politics that thought seriously about global transformation of the commons, about how to, how to combine anti-capitalism and anti-imperialism, like what its strength was and what its weakness was. So I think the strength, it was actually in offering a fairly comprehensive agenda about how you could have a different international order. So that if, you know, that if you think about the, the new international economic order, um, the kinds of policies and ideas that Nyerere and Manley and a whole host of people were imagining, they were thinking through a version of multilateralism that was regional, that was federated, 
that addressed questions of global poverty through alternative international institutions that would you know, significantly redistribute global wealth, um, that was tied to a, a general politics of non-aligned in the context of the Cold War that reconceived how you could imagine uh, global actors interacting in the context of various kinds of you know, security crises and threats not based on intervention. So that, that I think as, a, as an alternative set of ideas, this is actually quite strong. And that to me is a big difference from the present in the sense that, you know, today when a crisis emerge, emerges or when like, for example, in the wake of um, the, um, the, the invasion of Ukraine, you have 1.7 billion people facing uh, uh, food, financial and energy uh, crises. Um, today, it's as if the only options are those that are presented by the the dominant states, whether or not it's the US or China and Russia or the countries in the EU, there are no other significant alternatives that have a global intellectual purchase. And that is a function of the collapse of that alternative transnational infrastructure. So global intellectual purchase, who cares about global intellectuals? Um, I mean, I, I think one of the things in our fields Broadly speaking, the last 30 years, there's been a, a turn to global intellectual history because there were some good ideas um, made, <laughs> but does that really matter? I mean, ultimately, I, I think in, I'm a historical materialist in a lot of regards. I think I think that that ideas are not the primary drivers of history. I think they, they channel and shape things in particular important ways. I am an intellectual historian. But I mean, we had a bunch of good ideas and nothing really changed. Not only nothing really changed, we got neoliberalism. We got like a worse version of a Fordist economy. So what do you think about that? Just that provocation, if you will? Yeah. So, I mean, th this is the point about the strength and the weakness. So the strength, I think, of the, the late 60s and 70s moment was a, you know, an account of how the world could be different. The weakness was how it was structurally embedded in relations of power. And this had to do with both the internal weaknesses of the anti-colonial movements and that, that generation of independence leaders, many of whom internally ended up collapsing into various forms of authoritarianism. It had to do with the fundamental inequalities in power between you know, the framework basically of the Cold War and the ideas of non-aligned that over time meant that the commitments of things like the NIEO ended up being politically defeated, um, often through force and violence, through the, the stick of military interventions, coups, assassinations, and then the the construction of a neoliberal order that you described as like as deeply problematic. So I agree that ideas on their own obviously can't be dominant, but I think that that you need basically both sides. Like you need strong social movements on the ground that have the capacity to confront structures of inequality, but then they also have to be connected to a clear idea about what alternative agendas might be. And I think that what we see in the present is, you know, two problems. Problem number one is that there's very little sense of, in the face of actual crises, what a left agenda would be as a response when it comes to foreign policy. And you also have the thorough demobilization of transnational social movements. Um, and so that strikes me as like the, the significant difference. Okay, so I want to stay in the 60s and the 70s for a second. And Aziz, I'm going to pose something. And 
and and I'm curious your reaction to it, that basically this whole thing was lost in 1914. And that we've been living, that was the moment when the proletariat could have actually, given the, 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 the historical instantiation of actually existing state power in the early 20th century, you could have had a social movement seize those reins and move things in a different direction. But perhaps by the late 60s and 1970s, that was already an impossibility. That we were already living in the hangover of the domination of global capitalism and global imperialism. Because I have a question. Because you said social movements are needed. And this is something we hear all the time on the left. We need social movements. Sure, social movements are good. How would they have practically done anything with the actual machinery of international imperialism and international capitalism? I'm not sure, given the actually existing state structures of the 1960s and 1970s, and really, to put a fine point on it, the state structures of post-1929 that's a real possibility, that the demos has a real possibility to seize things. Just thinking from a macro-historical perspective, what do you think that's absolutely ridiculous and that there, there are all these hinge points post-1914 that I'm not thinking of? But I, I, another provocative statement, but I'd love to get your take on it. Yeah, so I mean, I, I guess I'm not one for arguments about historical impossibility, but I definitely agree with the point that there are profound structural impediments to agency. That agency, freedom movements, transformative change takes place within the context of background structures. And that these background structures shift over time. They become more closed. They become more open. And I certainly agree. I mean, this is this like a central point in a lot of my own writing and thinking that the late 19th, early 20th century is really the period of most profound openness in terms of the range of experiments and political possibilities for good and for bad that are actually genuinely on the table. Um, and I do think that you're right, like that if we think about, well, what are the transnational institutions that embodied a left international alternative that were strongest uh, across the world, had the capacity to actually claim majority support within their own states and to, in fact take over the apparatus of their particular states, then, you know, really it's the global labor movement. And that, that high point of a, of a global labor movement with that capacity to control majorities on behalf of alternative vision is the period, is basically the first two decades of the 20th century. And that a decisive historical moment is the fact that the global socialist movement ends up dividing over what to do during World War One and ends up in large part accommodating the terms of their own kind of nationalist states. And this ends up being, you know, quite destructive. That doesn't mean that the internationalist dimension of global labor absolutely disappears. There are clearly um, periods throughout the 20th century of its own strength, including in the 30s, including in various ways in the 60s and 70s. But the openness of structural possibility absolutely declines. And I do think that this, the claim that you're making about by the time we get to the 60s and the 70s, you know, how much space is there actually um, is substantially smaller, especially if what we're talking about is the global north in places like the United States, parts of Europe. And you can see this, frankly, in the story of what happens to the new left and to groups like the Panthers. So, you know, f f in the context of Vietnam, when we're talking about the Democratic National Convention in August 68, there is extensive mass mobilized opposition to the war and to an argument that, you know, perhaps the U.S. is 
domestic, this is an argument within, um, within the U.S. The U.S. is, in fact, an imperialist state and that the problem isn't just the war in Vietnam, it's the Cold War. But the truth of the matter is that there are so many structural developments over the preceding half century and the terms of American primacy had been so locked into place in part because of how imperial power abroad had strengthened the welfare state and provided real benefits to a white working and middle class that there really wasn't a pathway for majority support for that kind of anti-imperialist position. And I think that was a profound constraint on you know, anti-imperial politics in the U.S. It's one of the reasons why I end the piece by noting that, you know, the story of you know, anti-imperial creativity and transformation tends to be a story that does not emerge at the center. It tends to emerge in the periphery. And it's increasingly over the course of the 20th century and the early 20th century been most interesting in the periphery, precisely because the further you get from the center of power, the less there are these real material and structural investments in the nature of the existing system. So I'd like to ask one question about the Western left, and then I want to dig in on that last comment, because I want, I want you to explicate precisely what you mean by interesting and power, um, and, and then I, I, the implication of that being meaningful. Why do you think in the North Atlantic world there's such a romanticization for the moment of the 60s and the 70s? And I would even say even the tactics of the 60s and the 70s, and I would describe the, the primary one that people romanticize is just mass protest, like literally the act of getting a lot of people together to protest. Um, because to me, that is not an instantiation of proper mass politics as it was initially understood between 1890 and 1930, which is that you're actually going to be a part of this corporate structure in state society relations and you're actually going to meaningful. It's kind of mass protests are basically moments of saying no, like they're instantiations. And then I, I think historically they've had very little effect. So I was just, I mean, like whether, I mean, there could to be a part of, and I'm not saying people shouldn't protest, but just from a pure strategic perspective. They have not achieved the goals. I do not think Vietnam was affected by mass protests. I think recent research has demonstrated that it was effective. It was, it was changed because conservative politicians got annoyed with it based on international political economic reasons. I think that is a, that is a convincing argument, a persuasive argument to me. So I was just wondering if you put on your cultural critic hat and not criticize anyone individually, but like talk through that, that nostalgia yeah. that to me seems profoundly misguided. So I, you know, I can't, I can't necessarily speak to the story in Europe because I'm just not equipped to do so. But in the U.S., I think a lot of it has to do with the account of um, liberalizing social change and with, a, with an emphasis on change through moral suasion, moral persuasion. Because if we focus on the idea that the way that things have improved for the better in the context of the civil rights movement or in the, like the ending of war in Vietnam is a function of kind of spontaneous mass protest, then in a way like that fits with a narrative about how improvements to the country have occurred. And that narrative is that, well, the basic way that things have changed is that um, people have engaged in forms of mobilization and then through the activities, especially nonviolent civil disobedience, uh, they've been able to convince a majority of the country that things should be different and that one should live up to, you know, one's better angels effectively. 
And that fits very naturally in a broader account of American identity and American exceptionalism. The U.S. has these values. It's had these values from the founding of liberty and equality. It's the essential truth marred perhaps by you know, the sins of slavery, native expropriation, misogyny, various forms of exclusion. And yet it's overcoming this through a sustained conversation. And to say, well, when we look back to the 60s, and especially the good 60s, but let's say the 60s in general, that the 60s wrought all these profound changes, and it did so because people went to the streets, they protested, and then both politicians and the public at large came to realize the goodness of these ideas, is to tell a story about change that's not just deeply self-congratulatory, but essentially reads out, even though we're talking about protest, interestingly, struggle, conflict, disagreement. Because to tell the story another way, which is, yes, we've had these profound moments of change, Civil War and Reconstruction, 1930s, and the entrenchment of um, white labor as included within the politics of the country, the 60s with the civil rights movement, even Vietnam. If we tell the story instead as one marked by really profound conflicts of interest between those with power and those without, and that change actually took place through moments of like really deep eruption, or change occurred through elite containment of more revolutionary and radical possibilities so as to sustain the existing order, then, you know, that suggests a very different politics for the present. It means that, well, we can't assume that moral suasion is going to win the day, that it might be the case that folks that are actually oppressive or enjoy economic and military power have to be defeated politically. And it also suggests that maybe the changes that we valorize were preservative, like they actually protected and sustained either the Cold War state or capitalist economic order in ways that would disrupt our comfortable stories about the past. So to me, I mean, just to reiterate one last thing, which is, it's this issue about, are, you know, are we willing to let go of homilies effectively about the idea that through conversation, we can somehow convince people with power to give up their power? And it's very difficult to give up on that because that's central to American liberalism. I'm glad you ended there because what you just said is the criticism of liberalism and one I agree with, but it does not explain why the left is still attached to this. Yeah, I think the thing I would say about the left is the story of the left from the Cold War to the present. And this is where I think one of the things that, was really, that has been really exciting about Bernie Sanders is a story of being reduced to extra institutional spaces, removed from party politics, from the Democratic Party's coalition, removed from the traditional organization of American labor. And so having power basically in spontaneous expression. And if your power is in spontaneous expression, I think one of the things that ends up happening is that, you know, first there is a, there's a value to spontaneous expression, but it ends up meaning that you tend to overemphasize its utility because, you know, if you've been systematically constrained when it comes to actual organizational authority, it's what you have left. And I feel like this is one of the reasons why a lot of, you know, a lot of the stuff that I've been writing and thinking about, but I think also a lot of what left politics is about really now is how to build institutional strength. Um, because the idea that extra institutional 
power alone is going to transform these entrenched spaces, you know, just, it's it's, uh, (laughs) yeah, it's its own kind of fantasy. And I think that also has a lot to do with that. The left as a, it's a subculture and has been a subculture. It's like punk rock, you know, it's people identify with it. They feel it. It's part of their literal ontological way of moving through the world. Uh, and then I, I think you see it a lot if you were ever, if, if one, if for example, Aziz, you're not on Twitter, God bless you. But you know, if you, if you were, if you were to even criticize protests as like a glorious place. Tooth, uh, yeah, exactly. If you were, if you were to criticize protests as a useful strategic move, you're immediately, you know, jumped on because people identify with the tactic because it's part of, I think, a subculture like punk rock. And I was wondering, and I, sorry, sorry I, and I should add that, like, I'm not anti-protest. I mean, so, you know, pr- protest and ma- mass movement activity in the streets, claiming um, spaces, engaging in things like general strikes. I mean, these can be very, very general strikes form. and mass protests is a big difference. Yeah, Hold I, on. Let's, let's okay, not but, put those two together. Well, I mean, but I, I, so we're, what I guess what I'm thinking about is extra institutional non-electoral forms of political intervention run the gamut. And there are many different non-violent forms of mass activity that are really essential to, to social transformation. The thing is when they get disconnected from power building or the capacity to actually meaningfully intervene. And the reason why I mentioned general strike is that like it matters, for example, when in the early part of the 20th century, when labor movement activists were talking about general strikes, they also had the power institutionally to essentially intervene at the point of production and literally bring economic activity to a halt. In that context, if you then say, well, we should have a general strike um, because of these circumstances, there's a real story you can tell about how that could disrupt activities of power. But if you then disconnect you know, the, the tactic or the, the instrument the tactic of direct, whatever the direct action tactic or the mass movement tactic is from, you know, a reality of actual power, power holding. That's when I think you get into some of these problems about sort of imagining change without necessarily dealing with the underlying structural reality. Yeah. And I would say in this country, we have one form and that's the mass protest that is not yeah. a general strike and not connected to any strategy. I mean, just in an actually existing historical reality, we have one tactic that is used over and over and over and over again, and that doesn't achieve any of its goals, in my opinion, yeah. or has very rarely or only on the margins. And so we have to rethink that strategy. And I agree with you, it's an institutional strategy, but sometimes that's, that's anathema on the left. But I do think that that, that rethinking or that criticism is anathema for identity, people identify with the tactic. But... Um, I want to actually bring us, before we even get further into your piece, into to the left in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, which we were talking about a bit off mic. And I was wondering if you see any of this discussion relating to that issue or, or how that left develop over, uh, developed over time. Yeah. So, you know, I think that the left arguments in the 80s and then especially the 90s and the 2000s were really important at that moment in time. And... That was because of, we've actually discussed some of this stuff in various contexts, because of how the end of the Cold War changed or altered liberal arguments about the U.S. and then also the conversation around American foreign policy, which is that, you know, if you were a liberal in the 70s and 80s, 
you even think of somebody like Jimmy Carter. I mean, there's a recognition that there have been some really terrible American practices during the Cold War. And there's an idea that, you know, the Cold War was a political conflict. You know, even if you think that the U.S. was the good guy, if you're a liberal, but, you know, overthrowing governments to back some idea of capitalist free markets is deeply suspect. And so there was a sense of political confrontation. And what happens with the end of the Cold War is that the political character of American global authority basically disappears and that it becomes very easy across the mainstream political spectrum to say that whatever the U.S. is doing is basically apolitical. The U.S. is just the global backstop and it's just a moral actor and the world, especially the world that's outside of Europe, so world of, you know, Asia, Africa, the global south, is just a disordered globe marked by various kinds of victims in need of humanitarian protection. And what the U.S. does when it asserts its global primacy is just to safeguard those in need and its interests are the world's interests. This was a way of, of rebooting, I think, Cold War ideas about a, the American century, but in a way that essentially disappeared the fact that, no, the American state and the security state in particular very clearly has continues to have a political character that's tied to the connection between military and corporate elites that end up dominating the terms of American global power. And so what I think anti-imperial activists in the 90s and the 2000s were doing was putting that front and center. And you can see this in ways that feel like, okay, maybe not, not the most sophisticated, but like what's at stake in saying, hey, what the U.S. is interested in the Middle East is oil, you know, or like that's the thing that's motivating the second Iraq war. So there's a kind of a complex liberal critique that's like, oh, that's ridiculous. It's not just oil. But the heart of the claim is that actually you have to look to the material interests of the state and recognize the extent to which American unipolarity is in service of specific interests. It's not just aiding whatever the, you know, the, the world wants, that there are a set of strategic goals, whether it's oil or the background counterterrorism politics or backing the regional alliances framed around Saudi Arabia and Israel or whatever else it is. That, that has to be contended, or even the story about the WTO and the set of global financial institutions that are emerging in the 90s, the, the confrontation with that, the anti-globalization protests are a way of saying, these are not just simply in everybody's interests, but they serve a particular way of, of organizing the world around global capital. Now, the problem, of course, is that the world changes. Like We're not in the 90s and the 2000s. And when the world changes, if you hold on to the same basic analysis, then I think you're less equipped to be able to deal with the particular problems of our moment. And the particular problems of our moment, and this is the stuff that, that you, you, know, you wrote so eloquently about in your piece for Harper's, is that we see the decline, basically, of American unipolarity and the rise of a multipolar world, but a multipolar world marked by a variety of, frankly, capitalist, authoritarian, destructive, competing states. And so if you're still framed around thinking of anti-imperialism as really anti-American primacy and unipolarity, then you'll see any version effectively of multipolarism as good without recognizing that you can be an imperial and authoritarian state, even if you're not seeking global hegemonic dominance. 
and that even a politics marked, let's say, by competing spheres of influence can actually be like really destructive for the underlying needs of the global majority. Hey everyone, it's Jake here, just plugging our Substack, AmericanPrestigePod.com. There you can sign up for the free list or become a paid subscriber where you'll get an extra full episode plus a mini episode every week. Plus you can check out all our archives, reading lists, series, etc. So, AmericanPrestigePod.com. Thanks. So I was going to wait for this, but let's get into it now because that leads directly into it. And I think this is um, probably the biggest disagreement you and I have between us. Uh, and I'd love to talk about it because I think we could drill down. Because effectively, and correct me if I'm wrong, in the peace for dissent, well, why don't you just explain it? What do you advocate the U.S. should do vis-a-vis Ukraine? And then we could just get the position out and then we could talk through it. Because I think it's very interesting how we might uh, differ on this one. Yeah, so I guess my own view about it is that when, when, cri- when crises emerge, one of the problems that the left has is that, you know, left, um, what counts as left foreign policy folks or activists don't necessarily have clear alternative positions. Like, what would you actually concretely do or recommend that the state do? Um, go, Let go me ahead. just briefly tangent. Why does an American, why do we have to have positions on what the U.S. should do everywhere in the world at all points? So, I, I, I mean, I, I agree. Like, it's that's not necessarily the case that you need to have because that presumes a kind of unipolar dominance. So that's, that's how we're you know, taught. Obviously, yeah. And in fact, my basic position, which is my position, is that the primary approach should start from the principle of do no harm, and it should start from a principle of do no harm precisely because that the the long history of the U.S. intervening everywhere, as you note, is one that generally has made things worse for the place where the U.S. intervenes, either directly with boots on the ground or through a variety of other um, toolkits, from military support to uh, you know economic engagements. So the basic principle, I think, is one of do no harm. But I also think it's still really significant to be able to kind of think about, let's say, if a state like the U.S. was in fact run by, you know, Bernie Sanders, Democratic Socialist, Social Democratic, whatever. If, if you had genuine popular front left forces that were in charge of the state. Now, a significant part of what I would imagine those left forces would be doing is demobilizing the national security state infrastructure based on a principle of do no harm, based on like ideas of restraint. But there would still have to be a working out of how to address circumstances that emerge on the global stage because of the interconnectedness of of communities and also this is maybe a difference because you know at the end of the day my own politics is internationalist and my central commitment is to a global world organized around principles of anti-colonialism and socialism so aziz my politics i would say are internationalist too and if there was a different moment if it was a different moment and there did there was a type of genuinely left-wing organization that commanded legitimacy and that commanded authority i think that it would make a lot of sense to promote that but from just where i'm standing in terms of a strategic perspective we live in a world of nation states that's a form of sovereignty that has that has succeeded and that if one wanted to pursue a genuinely internationalist position it would pri- primarily involve north 
North America as a whole with creating an integrated democratic structure with Mexico and Canada, which are, you know, some of the largest trading partners of the United States and which the United States has long cultural ties to, et cetera, et cetera. I, I just don't see... What, what 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 do you mean by internationalism then i i i guess is what i would ask if a, a various population abroad um asks for something from the united states that we have to determine in that instance whether we have a responsibility to protect um i'm just curious if maybe you can elaborate given what i think we agree on are the strategic or empirical realities of the world today yeah so i i think that we basically need to separate out two different kinds of questions so I, I think one of the, the real reasons why the left in the U.S. is almost always on the defensive when it comes to foreign policy is because the security state has a really clear agenda and, this, and control over a state infrastructure where it feels like doing something means doing whatever it is that state elites sort of say is consistent with the world's interests. And so in a way, I think as just a matter of political contestation and, you know, movement building, that it's really important for left activists to be able to say, well, how is it that one would operate with respect to the state differently? So that the options aren't just do something equals whatever, you know, in this context, Biden and company want, which I think is in fact deleterious in the context of Russia and Ukraine, which is built around Cold War rivalries, Manichaean good versus bad, a kind of militarized sanctions and confrontational approach that I that I don't support, or do nothing, which is essentially a seed to Russian imperialism and fundamental violation of self-determination. So you need to conceive of alternatives, even just as a way of engaging in political battle. And that part of the reason why I think over the last year, it's the left that's been on the defensive is the sense that the left doesn't actually have alternatives, and it's the security state that shapes the terms by which we have these conversations. So that's one thing. Then there's a second thing, which is, you know, we live in a world of nation states. The nation state as a form, I think, has been destructive over the course of the 20th century in our own. I would prefer Agreed. a different mode of political organization. Agreed. But there's no doubt that that's the nature of the state form that's dominant. And so that means that as a matter of meaningful social change, that transformation is going to have to take place within the terms of the nation-state boundary. But I worry that the kind of politics that has emerged in the, you know, on the left really over the last half century in particular is one that's not just contesting within the nation-state, but it is trapped within the nation-state. In other words, it doesn't have the kinds of thick, meaningful linkages with other left formations in other states that can think both transnationally about global solutions, but also how to collectively strengthen and build each other. In a way, even though we have a world of nation states, I would say that Biden and company think transnationally. You know, whenever these social problems emerge, they have these thick relationships with leaders in other states. They're repeat players. They come up with collective solutions. I have problems with the nature of those solutions. But that's a mode of transnational politics that replicates the national security state that has to be responded to with equivalent transnational forms on the left. But the big difference is there's a global class consciousness of the bourgeoisie and absolutely none of that for the working class. I mean, well, that, so, that, so I think that but I think that's precisely the thought, which is when I when when I make an argument for, you know, we need to rebuild the transnational institutions of the left. That's about, well, you know, why is it? 
that the primary identification in the U.S. is essentially with co-nationals, regardless of whether or not those co-nationals have our shared interests, rather than thinking about global collectives of communities with shared interests and attempting to sort of restitch the fabric of the institutional forms that existed across state borders. Right. I mean, so this is the old problem. We have the objective conditions, but the subjective conditions don't exist. So what what I would 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 imagine would happen is you'd have a bunch of transnational organizations led by intellectuals and activists with very little basis in, a, in an organic working class. And then that just becomes to the question of how would one actually raise a class consciousness of a, of a, a genuinely global transnational working class? And then this becomes, maybe I'm a bit too fatalistic, but that might, that moment might not be at, at hand is what I'm saying. So I guess it's a strategic choice. I actually think that moving through the nation state, getting rid of the military industrial complex, getting rid of the national security state, and then looking on our literal borders to a transnational working class that is already very directly and visibly linked between Mexico, Canada, and the United States would be a more fruitful way to go than to try to recreate the world of the internationals or the common term. So I actually don't think that there's a ton of disagreement on this. So that in the latter part of the piece, when I get to, well, what actually would I recommend? So I, there's one bit of it, which is, I do think that you need to have seriously thought through alternatives to the social problems or perceived crises that emerge. Because if you don't on the left, it reaffirms the position of the security state. And so this is why I've written on Syria, written on, you know, included a discussion of Ukraine in this context, because I felt like these are hard problems. But then there's a second thing, which is, how to push toward the kind of transnational alternative, you know, global alternative that I'm interested in. And what I ended up arguing, I argue for at the end of the piece is that we need to think of foreign policy as also a site of power building and of what in the domestic context in the U.S. people talk about as non-reformist or revolutionary reforms. In other words, changes, levers that would alter the actual distribution of power and make it harder for the status quo to replicate itself. And the three that I emphasize, and this is not because I think these are the most important general issues facing foreign policy, but because they connect to this question about power building, has to do with, one, the position of the global labor movement, so transnational property rights, two, decriminalizing the border, and then three, um, systematically demobilizing the national security state, so uh, constraining the budget. I think these are good policies in their own terms, but what each of them do is precisely the kind of thing you were describing. So changes internationally to property rights, stronger uh, global labor protections, uh, environmental protections, what these also do is they strengthen the position of the labor movement and unions, which institutionally have been the home, the most powerful, meaningful home across borders, really, if we think about the long 20th century and the conversation we're having about 1914, for building transnational left institutions. That when you have strong global labor movements, you have a stronger left. Like it's, we have very rare examples of left politics, both domestically and internationally, that have succeeded in the context of a defeated and demobilized labor movement. Two, decriminalizing the border. What is the most obvious example, as you just said, of a transnational left in the U.S.? It is immigrant working class. And you have undocumented and immigrant workers that are the essential workers in the U.S. And that if those communities have rights, not only does it strengthen the working class domestically in the U.S., it builds transnational connections across the border, particularly with Mexico. And then third, the national security state. 
The national security state is a massive fund of money that sustains a set of interests that are fundamentally antithetical to the interests of poor and oppressed people both here and abroad. And that if you can connect that to even just social democratic agendas domestically, that is a clear way of showing the material implications of the national security state and building a kind of mass movement politics that links domestic and foreign. So these are meant to be levers that you can pursue domestically to build the kinds of policies. Now, I don't think, you know, footloose, thinking about transnationalism, which has been primarily, frankly, the way it's been done, which is about footloose intellectuals like us, like myself, who don't really have meaningful connections to left in various parts of the world. I mean, that's what it's been, just in reality. Conceiving (laughs) of how else to, to operate, that's not a productive path. And I think it's also one that, frankly... And this is the last point I make, I'll make here, that's fed the orientation of the 90s and 2000s version of anti-imperialism. Because if transnationalism is just about intellectuals and the connections they might have with other intellectuals wherever, then the easiest way of thinking about, um, about an anti-imperial politics is to say, well, the U.S. is everywhere. So whatever it is that the U.S. is doing is the thing that we're going to contest. And that falls back into transforming anti-imperialism into only a conversation effectively about opposition to unipolar global dominance. So, Aziz, I have a a question here about the national security state and and defunding and and destroying, basically, the national security state in light of Ukraine. And it's it's applicable to Ukraine. It's also applicable to the next worthy cause that comes down the pike uh, along these lines. One of the things you talk about in the, in your piece is the worthiness, I think, of, of providing defensive military assistance to Ukraine and, you know, maintaining the capacity to provide that type of military assistance. I think in principle, that's, that's great. And, and we could argue about whether it's possible to, to limit that to purely defensive military capabilities. I think you always get on the, the kind of slippery slope to, to something bigger and better. But, uh, in principle, I think that's that's a, a, a good ideal. That said, the system that we live in now, providing Ukraine even with defensive military assistance, means funneling more money into the national security state, which then turns around and uses it to lobby for bigger budgets, uh, for you know every all the things that that maintain the military industrial complex. So I, I'm curious, um, you know, in, in terms of you know there are solutions long term that that could be alternatives to that but what do we do right now when you know there is this cause that you can argue deserves support but that support is only going to fu- fuel the kind of uh, antithesis of the kind of outlook that you're you're talking about yeah i mean i think that's a that's a great question and it's a it's it's so to me this seems to be the productive debates that we should be having on the left which is you know, so what what concretely would it actually mean to think seriously about um, defensive assistance that's non-escalatory, that's tied to actually backing diplomatic resolutions, that is divorced from the kind of militarized approach of sanctions and essentially trying to isolate a regional adversary in Russia? And how would that actually be combined with a broader objective, where the broader objective 
is substantially demobilizing the national security state like that. So, I mean, I think that's that's a really hard question and that should be the conversation. But I don't think the difficulty of squaring that circle should then be a reason to essentially say that the appropriate approach is to accept the the either or framing that the security state provides, which is you have to back everything that it does or you have to just simply oppose. So the way that I would think about it is, you know, we have lots of global examples of non-hegemonic states that in the context of past anti-colonial struggles have provided some degree of military assistance. You know, and for example, one of the things that I, I think of is Cuba's role in the late but Cuba doesn't have a national security that, state like the United States. I think we're talking about so, different qualities. So, yeah, yeah. So, but that, but this is this this is the point, which is conceptually, providing defensive military assistance and having an overarching eight hundred billion dollar plus national security framework need not go together. And so, I don't think it's necessarily impossible as a programmatic effort to say. There might be some incredibly rare circumstances. Now, if you were just to look at the range of settings in which the U.S. has provided military assistance, you know, frankly, post-World War II, that I would say, well, this is a legitimate circumstance in which the U.S. should. It's vanishingly small. I mean, the, the other real example that I had in mind was, you know, I, I for example, uh, would have opposed the arms embargo that the U.S. backed in the context of um, the, Serbia's invasion basically of, of Bosnia and that the arms embargo there meant that it froze the military advantage that the Serbian state had and created the context for ethnic cleansing. I mean, but, but now here what we're talking about is like two, two illustrations, two examples. The vast majority of circumstances where I'd say that the principle of do no harm would be that the U.S. should not be in the business of providing even military support. And indeed, that was my position in the context of Syria. But just because there might be some very small occasional circumstances, that doesn't mean that one should then say that the only way of contesting the national security state is to have just like an absolutely blanket opposition. I think that you can argue that, hey, there, there needs to be substantial demobilization, but that doesn't mean that it's impossible to provide but military then, assistance. Now, I do recognize the, the political point that you're but making, But then you get is, a world where the, I mean, that, that the people who actually run these things will always point to those, that, those two examples, and then the beast will keep on growing and growing, which has been the actual course of history. I mean, that, but, you know, he, if you, if, but this is like an either-or situation, which is like the other position, this is the, the, the fate that the anti-imperial leftists face. The other position also... <clears throat> you know, feeds the beast of the security state, which is the the failure to essentially articulate a position that's not just blanket opposition, then creates a context in which it's the, the security state that's the only one that has a quote unquote credible position. And so then that justifies I'm not sure I agree with that logic. Spending. I'm not sure that the I don't I don't necessarily agree with that logic. That the, that the just saying no. Like I would always joke if I was ever in a presidential administration, I'd be the guy in the room just saying, Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And well, I think, well, I mean, I, I, and I think that blanket opposition is actually a reasonable position. I think that 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 is a position more likely to result in what we want than participating in sort of the hyper elite debates about you know the 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 facts and logic game of like in this particular case there is a legitimate 
you know, responsibility to protect for X or Y reasons because we have Z or A connections to movements on the ground. To me, actually, in terms of the political question, the blanket opposition is more effective because what will I, I think, and Aziz, tell me if you think I'm wrong, once we start engaging in sort of these like actually complex debates that if we were in a seminar room, we would be engaging, they're always going to be captured by the far more powerful side, which is the military industrial complex that we should just say, no, we don't need you. Stop it. So I, I guess th- this is a caveat to the point that you made. So I, you know, which is to say, I'm not sure there's as much, um, much disagreement between us as it might seem, but I guess we'll leave that to the listeners, which is, <laughs> no, I love I it. Think, I love it. You know, I respect, I think so that the, de- I think that the default position should be the one that you articulated again, based on the idea of restraint and a principle of do no harm. There are very, very few examples that we can think of, in my view, post-World War II, in which uh, U.S. military intervention, again, from boots on the ground to the provision of various kinds of escalatory military support, has actually been productive. And so I think the default position is very clearly, don't do what the security state's doing. And indeed, my position in the context of Ukraine is also opposition to what the actual security state's policy is. But then I think there's this issue about, well, if that's the default position, do you need, I mean, this is where I see the disagreement. Do you need to be able to articulate a, an alter, credible alternative about how a left state would actually operate if it was in control of the levers of government? And I think politically, as a way of engaging in American politics, and this is maybe a disagreement, I think that there are strategic benefits really for being able to do this. And I think there's strategic benefits because we live in a country in which for as long as anyone can genuinely remember, there's basically nobody more or less alive in the U.S. that has significant conscious memory of an American world that was not marked by the American century and unipolar dominance. And it's such a deep part of like the, the cultural wellspring of the nation that a position that is just not just as a default, but as a practical matter, opposition feeds into the very statistics that you noted in your piece, where like 91% of Americans say, well, the world is actually better off if the US is the dominant hegemon. Because the thought is the only state, even if it systematically gets things wrong, that's capable of intervening is the state. And what that means is the security state. So I, I kind of feel like there needs to be this disaggregation between the default political position, which is going to hold, frankly, 98% of the time when we're not talking about imperial invasion in violation of basic principles of self-determination, and then a kind of complex assessment about what to do with the particular details. Yeah, I, I think we unfortunately have to go, but I just want to to say I my, my supposition would be that that 2% every time, even seeding that, would result in just more funding, but uh, everyone. I, I, I well, I, Derek, I, I have. I mean, I, I think to to maybe sum this up. I think uh, you know, Aziz, this is something I used to say about this podcast uh, before it we became the official uh, podcast of uh, Lockheed Martin. Uh, was, <laughs> thank you to our sponsors. <laughs> yes, thank you. By the way, to our sponsors. Um, one of the things I used to say about this podcast was, I, I, I if we could shift the debate, not not us, you know, but generally. If we could shift things so that the first question that gets asked in Washington every time something happens somewhere else in the world is not, what should America do about that? 
But should America do anything about that? It seems like such a small shift, but I think it would fundamentally change the way that this country operates. So, I I mean, I, I 100% agree. And, you know, I'd say these are just really tough kind of political and strategic questions, which is, how do you displace the fixation on American primacy, on the idea that it is the U.S.'s responsibility to, to enjoy this hegemonic status, both among elites and, frankly, among the public? And how do you push toward a world that is genuinely multipolar, but not multipolar in terms of now it's just elites in China, Russia, it, uh, Germany, and the U.S. that are making decisions, but it's actually local communities on the ground. And all of these are just like, they're hard questions about strategy and effectively building an alternative world. And to the extent that the piece that I wrote was meant as an intervention, it was sort of organized around two thoughts, both of which one can contest. Point one was that in the here and now, the the left activists have to, rather than exiting debates or just falling back into a, you know, a very like simple anti-unipolar line, have to actually work through the complexities of each of these circumstances. And then two, have to engage in long run institution building that's transnational that allows conversations to proceed, not just through the security apparatuses of the state. But, you know, we're all basically collectively in the same predicament trying to work through um, how to move the conversation both domestically in the U.S. and then also how to have it connect to a world that's genuinely organized on different terms. I think we'll leave it there. On that note, Aziz Efrana, Richard and Lois Cole, professor of law at Cornell Law School. The piece is Left Internationalism in the Heart of Empire from Descent Magazine. Uh, we'll have a link to that in the show description. Aziz, thanks so much for coming back. And, and we'll definitely have you. This is a conversation that could go on indefinitely, really. So I'm sure we will have you back to continue it. It was my pleasure. Great to be here. And thanks so much for everything you do. Thank you.